morning every time I say any kind of reference. Um, I feel like I'm missing an opportunity to use this whiteboard that's just perfectly right there, but uh, I don't plan on doing so. Um, I guess, Mark, I guess you use it some? Okay. Um, well, if you want to turn with me, we're going to be in Philippians. Um, I do want to update you guys on what's going on in the life of Redeemer. Um, but I think the most important thing we can do is look at Scripture together. And so what I've tried to do in my update is to kind of intertwine the two together. Um, because as most of you, uh, I'm sure, are aware of by now, uh, to some extent or another, one of our main focuses is trying to reach the Air Force community that make up the North 45 areas. Well, that's just all of Columbus. Um, and so we're going to look at a scripture in Philippians that I think is um, something that I happened on uh, when kind of looking into organizations that did similar things. Um, so it's not an original thought of mine, but it's a thought that I think God's been using for centuries. And so we're going to look at that together. But um, I want to pray for us, and then I'm going to give you an update, and then we'll look at some scripture together. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you, God. Um, many of the names mentioned tonight, Father, I have, um, um, I don't know them well. Uh, some I know somewhat. So, Father, my prayer would be that you know them, and we know that to be true. And so I pray over the circumstances mentioned in just a moment ago, God, that you would uh, sovereignly work through and in their lives. God, one, uh, first and foremost, to bring yourself glory, and two, God, for them to, if they know you, that it would work out to the best uh, way possible, God. And we know that is true, because for your children, you unfolding your perfect will is the best thing for us. And so, Father, my other prayer would be that if anyone mentioned in that, God, if they don't know you or those around them don't know you, God, that you would use these circumstances to leverage your gospel in such a way that would open up their eyes and hearts to know you. God, now as we approach your word, God, let it do the same for us. God, let us understand the importance of leveraging our day-to-day -day lives in such a way that would glorify you and that would make the gospel known in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first and foremost, let me ask this question. Can you hear me? Okay, you can? Okay. Um, I, it wasn't, I don't remember there being these many fans and stuff last time. Um, maybe it's because I was actually coming through the system or something. I'm not sure. Maybe it's just the difference of height. I, I don't know. But anyway, so just to kind of update you on what we're doing at Redeemer, um, as I said just a moment ago, one of our main focuses is the Air Force community. Um, now, because of that, we also are going to try to focus on the W and the campus there because they're similar. Um, they're similar because, one, they're similar in age, but two, they're similar in lifestyle. It's a transient lifestyle. Uh, but we're also just going to focus on communities in the area of Columbus. And so one of the big communities there that we're focusing on is the one that my family and I have chose to live in, and which is Caledonia. If you're not familiar with the area, when you get to the North 45 area, you take a left, and it's about five miles from 45. Totally different place, but not that far away. Uh, that's where a lot of families land that come to this area to serve in the Air Force, to be instructors or uh, even to be pilot trainer in training. Um, but anyway, so that's kind of our, our main focus. And uh, so some of the things I'm going to highlight that's happened since we started meeting as a core group in February really wraps around that, okay? 
the first thing I think is pretty cool um, and it's awesome, but it's also been very hard, is that since we um, launched uh, as a core group in March, we've had the opportunity to send off two of our Air Force men. Uh, one individual went to Nebraska. The other one is now in Oklahoma, but he will be in California within the next couple of months. He's doing some additional training before he goes to California. Um, those two guys um, are ones that I've been able to meet with regularly. Uh, one of them's name is Josh. He's getting married in January, his wife-to-be, Hannah. Uh, we were able to pray over them, commission them, and I'm, I'll explain what we're doing with that in just a moment. Uh, pray over them, commission them. Uh, emphasis there is that Josh isn't going by himself, but he's going with his wife. Uh, but we also had the opportunity to pray for her because currently, right now, she's in Spain. And she will be in Spain for another month and a half for her schooling. And so she's got a great opportunity there to even proclaim the gospel in everyday occurrences of being a Spanish major at, I think, Ole Miss. Uh, the other individual's name is Tim. Uh, Tim is uh, one that he's played a vital part uh, at Redeemer because he came to Columbus as a believer. And so he was able to speak into how to reach those that are coming into the area that already know Christ. Josh came in as an unbeliever and one that I've discipled since about three months after he got saved. Um, these two guys, we've commissioned them. And the reason why I word it that way is because it's our conviction that um, God is using the United States military, uh, specifically here, the United States Air Force, to send people all over the world to make disciples. Um, and so it's on the military's dime, but God is the one sending them. And so what we want to do is highlight that. We want to highlight that, that they're going somewhere. Yes, the Air Force is sending them. The Air Force is paying the way. The Air Force is going to put them where they need to be, but God is ultimately the one doing something in that. They may go to an area that is highly churched, or they may go to an area that's not so highly churched. But regardless, it's their job and their responsibility, like everyone else, to leverage their day-to-day -day life with the gospel. And we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at Paul's example in that in just a moment. Um, outside of those two things, sending and commissioning out those two guys, um, just to kind of note what we do with that is uh, when I commission those two guys out, we pray for them. Uh, so far, I've made it a habit of myself and another individual that's in the Air Force to pray over them before um, that service ends. We eat a meal together. I send them out with a, well... It's a Bible that looks just like this. It's a Creeds and Confession Bible. It's a fantastic little Bible. Uh, along with a stack of, um, there's a publishing company called Nine Marks that produces some amazing things. Uh, they wrote about 20 booklets that have just general questions. Um, it can be used for apologetics or it can be used just for helping believers or new believers answer these questions. And so we send them out with those two things. Um, as just a final way of equipping them for whatever they may encounter whenever they get wherever God is sending them. Uh, outside of that, um, as of right now, we have five families uh, and one individual that is currently attending Redeemer um, with, um, within that group we have four families, which it totals nine people, that will make up the founding church members of Redeemer Church in just a few weeks. Um, we have one couple that's just not uh, completely decided yet, but they're working towards that. Um, they were a part of a um, good godly church that Mark and I both know the pastor of, and 
Um, their church decided to disband a few months ago, and so they're being slow in entering another church before they uh, jump into something. Um, but outside of that, like I said, we have the nine individuals, um, these four families, all of them adults except for my oldest child, which will make one of them, uh, will be founding members. Um, and outside of that, just to kind of give some actual numbers of that, including kids, that makes 19 people. Uh, now, nine of those are kids, or eight of those are kids. So it's kids heavy, uh, which is a fantastic thing nonetheless. Um, with that being the case, um, when I say we're going to be founding church members, our initial plan was this coming Sunday to have our um, have a service like we've been having, but transition from our 3 o'clock service that we've been having up until this Sunday to a 10 a.m. service. Um, and then we're doing that out of um, kind of the, the use of the space that we're using. It's better for us to meet in the morning rather than the evening. Uh, then also it's just more traditional in the sense uh, to meet in the mornings in our area. It's more of a cultural thing, but it's helpful nonetheless. And so uh, we're transitioning to that time period, and we were going to have our first family business meeting and uh, implement church membership and then do all the fun things that you must do to be a nonprofit organization in the state of Mississippi, which is vote on bylaws and constitutions and things that you guys have done, but or probably thankful you don't have to do again. Um, we were planning on doing that this Sunday, but we have one family that um, had ended up, one of the husband ended up testing positive for COVID. Uh, we did not meet this past Sunday, so I have not been around him in two weeks. So there's no no issue there, except for he's not doing, uh, it's, it's uh, kicking him down a little bit. Uh, then we have another family that's gonna be out of town. And so we want those people there. Um, and so we're going to push back the launch of starting official uh, membership and all of those things until everyone is healthy and able to be there. Um, one thing that I've learned in this season is flexibility is key, and we don't rush things. Um, even though I don't want to be flexible and I want to rush things, um, I've learned those things. And so, um, so we're going to push that off until um, the 26th, I believe, is that, that two weeks after that. You give that family some time to recuperate and be there um, and for us to kind of do that together. And one thing that I'm looking forward to more than anything is that following Sunday, which will be sometime in October, whatever that date may be. Uh, if you're smarter than me, you maybe could give me that date in this moment, but I can't. Um, we're going to have our first ever time of taking Lord's Supper together. And so I'm looking forward to that because that's the one of the key things we have not done yet because we have not been a church yet. Um, outside of that, um, we've done some uh, prayer walk there um, where we're meeting, which is we're meeting at the BSU, which is the Baptist Student Union at the W's campus downtown. Um, for the foreseeable future, that will be where we meet unless COVID um, prevents a problem there. I don't think it will because that building is owned by Mississippi Baptist, essentially um, not owned by the W or anything of that nature. It's not on campus. We're a separate entity. So I don't foresee that being a problem. If it did become a problem, we would meet in my home uh, until something could change with that. Um, that's our goal for the first year. After that, we're going to evaluate maybe some places down the North 45 area that we can meet in. But if you ever drive to Columbus, you'll notice that in between 
um, Aberdeen or Hamilton and Columbus. There's not a ton of locations for a church to meet. And so we're going to be prayerful, prayerful when we're doing that, but also be thankful for where God is placing us for a season. And so we've done that, and then we're projected to help with a, um, an event going on in the Caledonia area in October. Uh, outside of those things, uh, the only big change would be that I uh, transitioned out of the youth pastorate position that I was serving previously this past Sunday, and I'm not serving as the youth pastor anymore, but the pastor of Redeemer uh, solely, except for the fact that um, there will be some times that I'll fill in for them as they search for the next guy that they're going to hire. And so, uh, just like I'm doing now, I'm going to try to continue to aid them in that way in other churches in the time that I can. And with Redeemer being new and a little bit different, Wednesday nights are generally going to be free, and so are Sunday nights. And so, I'm um, going to try to help churches as much as I can that's in a benefit to them, but also to us um, as Redeemer, but also a family. And so, with all that being said, that's kind of the update. Um, one thing that I've noted before, I just want to say again, is that we at Redeemer, we're, our goal and our desire, what we're going to strive to be is a multi-demographic community of believers for the purpose of glorifying God in three ways. By proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and resting in Christ. Um, when you listen to that mission statement, that should be no different than any other church. Um, and so it may be a catchy way of saying it, but we're trying to accomplish the same thing other churches all over the world are trying to accomplish. And that is making much of Jesus um, by proclaiming his gospel, by making disciples and resting in him to do the work that he's going to do. All right. Um, so outside of that, I want to transition into the Philippian scripture. Um, any questions afterwards, I'll stick around for a while, uh, as long as you guys are here. And you can ask me whatever questions you may have. Or, if you want to, I can awkwardly stand up here and you can ask me questions afterwards. It's whatever you want to do. Uh, I'm very, like I said, very flexible. Alright, so Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking, ultimately, at verses 12 through 14. But, um, with my style, we're really going to look at most of the first half of the book, Okay. Um, and what I, what I really want to say now before we get into this, and one reason I chose this scripture, is um, when you look at verses 3 through 5, it says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for, your, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We're going to look at what Paul means by all of that in just a moment, but I want to try to make this as personal as I can, is that pretty much before um, before we became Redeemer, before I had a logo, before I had a name, before a lot of those things happened, you guys have been praying for us. And so um, I want you to know this reality about Redeemer is as of right now, you guys are as much as part of Redeemer as the people that make up our core group that are meeting every week. Because one, I know you're praying for us and you're supporting us. And so I picked this scripture for multiple reasons, but three through five is one of those. Because I want to express to you guys my gratitude for you. My gratitude that you're praying for us, that you're partnering with us, but also most importantly, that this is a church that I am confident that is preaching and proclaiming sound teaching in the gospel regularly. 
and that you guys are living that out in your life. And so thank you. Uh, I, I appreciate you guys so much. And I want to kind of tie that in in a personal way as much as I can because I really am uh, I, I'm taken back by your gratitude to not only have me come and speak tonight, but also just to be a part of what we're doing in Columbus. It means uh, the world to me. But outside of that, I want to look at what Paul actually means here too because it's going to help us understand 12 through 15 better, okay? So in verses 3 through 5, I just read that. Paul says, From the beginning, your partnership in the gospel, from the first day until now, picking up in verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's our prayer, right? Not only for our churches, but for us as people, that God, the one that saved us, God, the one that redeemed us, would continue the good work that he started in us, right? And so Paul, understanding how this works, saying, look, I'm confident of this. I'm, in, I'm sure that this is going to be the case. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel the way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are my partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and com confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, there's so much truth packed in those sets of scriptures. I'm not going to try to to begin to unpack that in its fullest. But what I want us to see in this is that Paul has a great affection and love for the church of Philippi. And he's confident that God did a work in them and that God is going to continue to do a work in them. But why? Because when you read other letters that Paul wrote... He didn't have this same affection. He didn't use the same terminology, the same language. Maybe some of them, but not all of them. Why would Paul write with such a love for this church? And so the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at this idea of a biblical example of church planning. And so I want to look at that because, one, I'm in the process of planning churches. Uh, and two, because... Though it's a little bit different of a path that got you here, you guys aren't too far from being a church plan either. And so I think, one, if we could just look for a moment as an, a biblical example of this, it'll help us understand even more why I am doing what I'm doing. So to do that, though, let's look at some scriptures in the book of Acts. Now, I made sure I look back at a text message between Mark and I, and you haven't made it here yet on Sunday mornings. Um, Acts 16, and I'm confident that as slow as he preaches through books, um, you guys will forget everything I'm about to say by the time he finally makes it there, okay? Um, I say that in a lot of jest because I, too, preach very slow through books, um, unless I set a plan like I have in the book of Ruth. But Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15 and then we're going to skip 25 through 40. And in between, I'm trying to try to give you some background there. But starting in verse 11, it says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day 
to Neopolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony, we remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. This pause before we keep going. So Paul is in um, the second missionary journey, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, during the second missionary journey, he's making this journey to Philippi. He lands here after traveling some places. He lands in Philippi. He stays there for some days. doesn't tell us how long, but some days. And what Paul would normally do when he was going into an area that would have a Jewish presence is he would go into the city and then he would find either a synagogue or a temple and he would try to find people of peace or uh, try to find people of like mind or religious people and really start his work there, right? Uh, because even though those that are Jewish would have had a different understanding of who Christ was, there would have been enough similarities there for him to have some common ground, for him to really uh, jump into a gospel-centered conversation. Paul, nonetheless, most likely would have tried this in Philippi, but being a Roman colony, most likely not a synagogue or things there. So what he did in another way was he found a place where these religious people essentially meet together. And it says there were some women had come together. We don't know if there were men there, but the language would express that there was just women meeting there. We don't know for sure. Um, but women came to him, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of, uh, the city of Thyrathra a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So, Luke, Paul, Barnabas, we're going to see his name in just a minute, meet these women by the river. They essentially share the gospel with them. We don't know if Lydia, it says Lydia was a worshiper of God. We don't know if she, that means she was a believer or not and maybe had not been baptized. We don't, I, I, I'm sure when Mark gets to this scripture, he'll give you a more definite answer there. But what we see nonetheless is Lydia and her family were baptized, Okay. Um, and then they request for them to stay with her for a period of time, and they do. And then when you get to verse 16, it says, They were going to the place of prayer. So some period goes on. They were going to a place of prayer. I'm going to skip this. I'm just going to explain what happens. Paul, Barnabas, Luke, and maybe some other individuals were traveling down the road, and this slave girl, this demon-possessed, comes up and starts proclaiming who they are, all of these things. And Paul casts this demon out. Now, what I find so interesting about that set of scripture is we don't see Paul do it again out of good intent, but out of ill intent. Paul doesn't do it to save this girl's life from this demon that had possessed her. Paul does it because he got annoyed. But after this unfolds, the individual that owned this slave girl raises Cain, gets Paul and Barnabas arrested for essentially 
taking his source of money away because she was a fortune teller that he leveraged to make money from people. So they get arrested, okay? And then that's where you get to the famous verses in verse 25. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison was shaken, and immediately all the doors were unfastened, were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. So, this is a story we've heard plenty of times. Paul and Silas, I said Barnabas earlier, Silas, um, are essentially singing to God while being imprisoned. This should really make us think about some current circumstances that we see going around our world, specifically Afghanistan. But Paul and Barnabas are arrested unjustly. And we're going to get to that in a moment because Paul kind of pulls rank and says, you arrested me, not knowing who I am, and essentially gets set free because he's a Roman citizen, that he was a high-ranking Roman citizen at that. But they get arrested Instead of complaining, instead of starting off, pulling rank, instead of doing any of these things, he and Silas are praising God in the jail. We're going to see in just a moment that Paul does a very similar thing in the book of Philip, in the books of the book of Philippians. But in this moment, when he first gets to Philippi, he finds himself arrested. Being arrested, he's praising God. And when he does, at some point, God does this miraculous work of all the chains falling off and all the doors open. This is where it gets interesting to me, is because I would assume that Paul and Silas are not the only people in this jail, uh, not only them but Luke, are not the only people in this jail. There's other individuals there. He says, for we are all here. This Roman guard presumes they have escaped, so he begins to kill himself because the outcome for him would have been very similar, if not him, only him, but his entire family um, would have been killed for the sake of him not doing his job well. But Paul says, we're all here. He interjects on behalf of this Roman jailer so that he doesn't do this. Why? Because Paul would have understood the culture to, enough to know why he was doing what he was doing. What I find interesting about this, this is me reading into the text a little bit, okay? So give me some mercy and grace here is I would presume that Paul and Silas would have had to convince those prisoners to stay in their jail cells. We don't know if they use words, physical action, or whatever the case may be, but you're talking about horrific people, most likely, imprisoned. Certainly they would have escaped. No, but Paul says, look, we're all here. Not a one of them escaped. So Paul not only announces this good news, as we're going to see in just a moment, to the jailer, but he also prevents and saves his life by intervening in a way that would prevent these other people from escaping jail. Verse 29 says, And the jailer called out for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, and fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Undoubtedly, this jailer would have heard the song in the scripture that Paul and Silas would have been saying. 
They would have understood why Paul was arrested. They would have, he, would, he understood enough of know about Paul and Silas and Luke to know whatever it meant to be saved. Okay? We don't know how long they're there, but we know that Paul was there long enough to make somewhat of the gospel made known to this guy, if it be directly or indirectly. Verse 31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour in the night, washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, and he and his family. And they brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. That's amazing. This jailer now takes the prisoners out of their jail, cleans them up, then he is baptized. They're sitting there having a meal together, rejoicing what God had done. Verse 35, But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrate have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. And they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they had encouraged them and departed. So Paul does make a scene here. But he rightfully does so because in making the scene, he was bringing glory to God. So when they were said, go in secret, they were wanting them to leave Philippi. But understanding their job was not complete yet. And what I would argue here is the job that was not complete is that Paul introduced this Roman jailer and Lydia and her family together. And what we see in that is this simple reality that in the work of saving people and connecting saved people, the first church of Philippi was started. And that's what we see Paul is writing to in the book of Philippians. He's writing most likely to more people within just those families but those two families. And when he's writing this to them, he says, look, from the beginning, from your conversion, you have partnered with me. He's been there. He saw it. Paul saw this firsthand. And so when Paul writes with affection, he's writing with affection because he had a, a, a direct hand on the planting of the church of Philippi. See, when he writes to Rome, the churches in Rome, he doesn't even know them yet. And so when Paul is writing with this affection, he's writing it because he knew them well. Because he was there when they got saved, he was there when the church got formed, and I'm sure his encouragement was given to them throughout all of this time in his journey. So, when I say all of that to say this, it doesn't say in verse 3, and I planted the church of Philippi. But what we see in the book of Acts and looking at the history here is certainly a biblical proof for church planning. Is that when lost people come to know Jesus, when there's a lost people to be saved, there's need for churches to be planted.
So the next thing I want us to see, um, and this one will be much quicker than that one, is Paul leveraging his circumstances for the sake of the gospel. That Paul leveraged his circumstances for the sake of the gospel. We're going to see some specific ways he does that, but we've already seen that, right? He lands in Philippi. He, there's not a temple to go to, so he, he gets word of this place of prayer, so he goes to the river. I mean, think about how sketchy that may would have even been in this culture. He goes to this place by the river. He meets with only women, presumably. He shares the gospel there. He gets arrested. He's singing and praising God in jail. Paul was certainly an example of leveraging circumstances for the sake of the gospel, but we see it clearly in verse 12 in Philippians chapter 1. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's not writing in doubt here. He's writing to this group of churches or church in Philippi, and he's encouraging them during his arrest. And what we see in this is as you keep going in verse 13, he says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all of the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. See, give some context of where Paul is. We don't know what this jail would have looked like. Um, some, some scholars would argue very similar to some of the previous jails where he'd been in that would have looked more like a sewer system than anything else. Um, I think most of the consensus would be that it was almost more like house arrest where Paul was kind of forced to be in his home and he couldn't leave and go anywhere. Uh, most likely because at this point he's in Rome uh, on way to be, as history would tell us, beheaded for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul is most likely under house arrest, probably, I would presume at least, to prevent him from proclaiming Christ even more. To prevent him from going through the streets of Rome, proclaiming Christ and Christ crucified and resurrected. And so Paul's in prison for the sake of the gospel. He's writing to this church in Philippi. At the last part of his life, he's bringing encouragement to them. He's saying, look, my circumstances is for good, and that good is to advance the gospel. Paul is leveraging his circumstances for the gospel's sake. You know, I, I made this statement a few weeks ago at Spring Hill. I actually, to be completely transparent, preach the same text to them as my going away sermon. And, you know, as I look back over the last month that what we've seen unfold before our eyes with everything going on in Afghanistan, there's much grief, there's much doubt, there's much fear, there's much a lot of things that come with that. And so I'm not trying to make light of any of that, okay? I'm not trying to make light of 14 soldiers that lost their life, not making light of any of those circumstances. But one thing that has been clear to me is that God has been glorified in that. Because, I, and I don't know the, the truth of this, but what I've seen circulated from trustworthy places is that if a church of about 300 individuals that went underground multiplied almost overnight to over 2,000 people. Because persecution breeds 
the work of the gospel. Paul understood this. But the reality is, as of right now, where we sit in America, persecution hasn't faced us. And if it does face us, it doesn't look the same as it does other places. Maybe that will change one day, very likely. But right now, what I want to call us to is to remember that we're called to do the same thing Paul is doing here. And we may want to think that we're the heroes and that we could do what Paul did or we could do what those brothers and sisters in Christ did while they were on the phone with their children before they were executed. But the reality is if we can't leverage the small everyday moments of our life for the sake of the gospel, we most certainly are not going to do it in the moments that or the, the, the hero moments where it's all on the line, all or nothing. And so what I want to call us to know here and to live out here is to use our everyday moments and leverage them for the sake of the gospel. We certainly see that in the life of Paul here, and it's certainly something we should be doing in our day-to-day life as well. So, in doing that though, the last thing what I want us to see is what is the result of leveraging these circumstances. See, we've seen a biblical example of church planning. We see Paul leveraging his circumstances for the sake of the gospel. Now, what are the results of that? And does all the results look good? Are they all positive? We'll see. Verse 13, the specific results for Paul in leveraging his circumstances, it says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Praetorium would be the Greek here. And I only know that because of a ministry. I'm not that smart. But a ministry that does something very similar to what we're trying to do in Columbus. Called the Praetorium Project. But what we see here is that Paul, most likely under house arrest. He has one type of person that is coming in and out of the prison. And that is the guards. That is the soldiers. And the result of it is that he's preaching the gospel to them regularly. And not only to them, it says it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. So everyone coming into his home, everyone in this area knows why Paul is arrested. But not only that, it says, and all the rest, and to all of the rest. So most likely, through the preaching of the gospel to these soldiers that were coming in and out of his home regularly to make sure he didn't preach the gospel, the gospel was being made known throughout all of the Roman guards, all of the Roman leadership, and most likely even to Caesar himself. See, they knew why Paul was arrested. Ultimately, that's why Paul died, but they knew why Paul was arrested. See, Paul leveraged the military that was coming in and out of his life. See, that's kind of what happened for me this last two years, is that these individuals came in my life that kind of opened my eyes up to the need of that in Columbus, a very specific church trying to specifically reach that particular group of people um, because I see the benefit of taking and using and leveraging these relationships to proclaim the gospel all over the world not where they have to be funded, but where the U.S. government funds them. Because this isn't a new thing. This is something that God was doing in the early church. So it's not to James's smarts. It's to God's sovereignty. All right. So the first way we see 
the first outcome of Paul leveraging his circumstances is that the gospel is spread throughout the, the guard. The second one is that uh, not only the guard, but all others. You know, for us, that's the same reality as when we begin to proclaim the gospel and leverage these moments in our life. The gospel is made known. If it be to your kids or grandkids or your co-workers or your family members or your neighbors, when you begin to leverage these everyday moments, the gospel is made known to those around you. What's the second way we see, the second result of this is found in verse 14 though. It says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Man, that's countercultural. Because you would think that Paul being arrested would cause more fears in the brothers. But what Paul is actually saying is that because of his imprisonment, other Christians are more bold to proclaim the gospel. So when we leverage the day-to-day moments in our life for the gospel's sake, what we're also going to do is not only make the gospel clear to unbelievers, but we're going to empower those around us to do the same thing in their lives. Think about it. Hopefully you can think of a similar moment of this. But have you ever had a moment where you went to share the gospel with somebody and then you come to find out they're a believer in Christ and they know Jesus and they've trusted in Him? I would tell you to keep sharing the gospel to make sure they actually know Jesus. We do live in Southern culture, so make sure they actually know Jesus. But that's an encouragement to you, but also to them. Because they see a godly example of someone proclaiming the gospel that did not know them. And so the point being here is that Paul is making this clear is that his imprisonment is not only good because the gospel was made more clear, but also because brothers and sisters in Christ was being more bold by his example. Verse 16, we see a good side effect, another good side effect of this. It says, The latter do out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So what he's getting at here is after making this statement, he says there's two type of people that rose up and started preaching. The one that did it out of love and the one that did it out of ill intent. So there were some, and I wanted to focus on the good before the bad, there were some that rose up and they preached the gospel out of love for God, out of love for brother, and out of love for just the gospel being proclaimed. They, out of, they did it out of care and love for Paul. They did it out of love for God. They did it out of reflection of what Christ has done for them. They began to preach out of a conviction of love, not a, a conviction of obligation. But it didn't it didn't also it also resulted in bad motivation as well. Look at fifteen and seventeen. It says some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Look at verse seventeen. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So, some people, this is twisted. It's so twisted. And it should give you some encouragement in the society that we live in, because it was twisted well before our day and age, right? Uh, But it's so twisted that there was people that actually rose up and began to preach the gospel, most likely... The fact that they could also have been arrested for it. But they did it 
out of ill intent for Paul so that his imprisonment would have been made worse. That sounds like negative things. Positive, out of love. Negative, out of selfish ambition. But the greatest result of leveraging these circumstances is found in verse 18. It says this, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul says it doesn't matter if they're doing it to get me or if they're doing it out of love for Christ. Because Christ is being proclaimed and God is certainly going to use that. And God would be glorified even in the negative intentions of people preaching in a wrong way. Now, he doesn't say preaching heretical things. He's saying preaching Christ crucified but out of ill intent. See, the reality to this is that the greatest result of leveraging our circumstances to proclaim and make the gospel known is that Christ is made known and God is glorified. So, all of that, my, guess, my challenge um, and my encouragement to you, um, I said this in the beginning, and I'm not trying to make much of Redeemer, but much of God, but um, our mission statement would essentially be a long statement that eventually kind of ends with the idea of glorifying God by proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and resting in Christ. And I made the statement that no church really looks different than that. They may say it differently, they may act it out differently, they may do it differently in their context, and all of those wonderful things, but every church has that same calling. Proclaim Christ, make disciples, and listen, biblically, those are the same thing. Yes, I know, I, I get that. But for the sake of us being intentional, we separate them a little bit. But the third is resting in Christ. And the reason why we do that third one is because when I look back on my salvation, and I think all of us would agree here, when I look back on my salvation, I was a wretched individual running away from Christ. When Christ found me and saved me, He did the work of saving me. And the reality is that though he uses people to proclaim the gospel, he does the same thing in their children's life, in our grandchildren's life, neighbors, co-workers, all of those people's lives, is that in their sinfulness he finds them and redeems them and saves them. We can proclaim, we can preach, we can teach. We can even take somebody that we think knows Jesus and disciple them. But at the end of the day, all of that work is God's work. And so we rest in God doing what God's going to do. And so, my encouragement to you is, whatever your circumstances are, leverage, leverage them for the gospel's sake. And when you do that, I am confident, just as Paul was confident, that God was going to complete the good work in the life of the Philippians, God will complete the good work in your life. And the reality is we're about nine months in, six months in. It's really been more like 18 months, but six months since meeting with a core group. And I've already faced much discouragement. 
And if you looked around the room and you looked at your church, you would find, probably find yourself in a similar place from time to time. But all we can do is proclaim the gospel, make disciples, and rest in Jesus. And when we do that, God is glorified. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. God, my prayer would be that as we look at the life of Paul, we'd be convicted of the needy need to leverage the circumstances in our life that would look light in comparison. God, that you would be glorified, that your Son would be made known to the world around us, and that loss would come to you. Trust in your Son and be saved. That we would come alongside them, teach them what it means to follow after him, and in doing all of these things, we would rest on your sovereign will. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.